Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This week on Around the Coin, Mike Townsend discusses his journey beginning as an engineer in Singapore, then moving to L.A. to design military UAVs. He tells us how he transitioned into payments by starting a point-of-sale company, Zing Checkout, and mobile payments company, Flowtab. Around the Coin. Today is an exciting day. We have the three of us on, Brian Faisal and myself, Mike Townsend, and we're going to be digging into the real early day, how to get into mobile st- mobile payments, uh, payments in general. We'll be talking a bit about my story, um, and uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. So with that, how's everyone doing today? Wonderful. Doing great. Great, great. Um, so how do you guys want to start it off? How did you... Yeah, so we want to start with you. With me? Yes. All right. Where to begin? Um, So, you know, I... I I, I guess uh, everyone's sort of atypical, right? Um, but you know, I got into the payment industry uh, through a through a friend of mine, Nate Nate Stewart, who had been consulting with a uh, a clothing company called Red Chapter. But even bringing it earlier to that, you know, if I was listening to this show and I'm considering how to get into the payment industry, I'm thinking, what would be the most valuable lessons or the most interesting things that I'd want to know? And uh, you know, coming from building two startups in the payment industry. Um, you know, going to the industry conferences, meeting all these executives, you know, and, and having one that's now successfully running in Austin, you know, I, I'm sitting back and thinking what I know is actually valuable. And when I graduated UConn, I went for mechanical engineering and I graduated and I had a opportunity to move to Singapore. So <clears throat> I took the opportunity. This was, uh, this would have been um, February 2010, uh, moved to Singapore lived and worked in the uh, Brookstone, which is a beautiful um, eight-story building, eight-story office building. And on the top of it is a, uh, a almost infinity pool, a workout gym, a tennis court. Uh, on the top of this building, it was an amazing place. And Brookstone is owned by a company called Osim. And Osim was started by this guy, Ron Sim. Ron's an amazing guy. And he had this vision to just build beautiful, elegant, products. I mean, in some sense, he had the sort of Steve, Steve Jobs vision of Asia. And with Brookstone, um, you know, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure how their business is doing now, but the, the place is just an amazing community and culture. Uh, so I worked there for about six months. 
And we worked on a lot of their research and design projects. Most of them never got released into the world. Uh, there was a, some neat massaging. They had color massages, massaging your eyes and this hand vibrator that would just, you know, sort of, you know, uh, uh, it, would, it would vibrate and massage your hand. And I worked on the next generation massage chairs, uh, which is about as far away from payments as you can ever get. But what I learned is that across Asia, how distribution channels work, how sourcing and manufacturing works, um, how the research and design projects actually go to being funded and pitched to the CEO of the company and you know move on to become consumer brand name products that we all have in our homes. I have a question, Mike. Sure. Um, I was always under the impression, I'm a Brookstone customer, I was always under the impression that Brookstone didn't originate their products. So you're saying that uh, uh, some portion thereof was actually designed internally. That's fascinating. Yeah, they do. They have a design team of about uh, about 25. And then they also have a lot of other products that they bring in. Uh, they manufacture a lot in Japan and Taiwan. Uh, I think a majority are brought in, but they do have a lot of their own internal R&D. And when I was there, the reason I was hired was to you know, bring in this American guy to sort of bring in a different cultural input uh, to sort of expand their internal research and design team. Mm. So it was a so, fascinating job when you got there? I mean, you were really... It, it really was. It opened up my eyes to the world of Asia. I mean, being in Singapore, you're living in a hub where you can travel to 10 different countries, you know, within a two-hour flight for less than 150 US dollars. And that's just wow. an amazing opportunity to get around. So, you know, going to Indonesia, going to Australia, and Taiwan, and uh, Malaysia, you know, all these places just, they give you an input as to the way people live. And I think, you know, that's why I try to dig into Faisal because I know, I know what he knows is so much different than what every other person listening to the show living in the United States, maybe California would know. And that's just the way people live, you know, how they think about small things. And I think how think people think about, you know, money and, and in Singapore, there's this beautiful system. It's more technologically advanced than anything I've seen in the States <clears throat> where they have this top up card. And Singapore was constructed uh, in a way that they had the opportunity to essentially develop the whole city on a blueprint, right? Because it was so quickly drawn up and, and created that they had these uh, rails, north, south, east, west, diagonals, and then they have the circular going around the city, all the buses, metros, and taxis are all connected and you can all pay in this top-up card. And the concept of using a top-up card was just so inspiring to me uh, to see that the efficiency and fluidity of a payment card sort of just gave everyone the, the freedom and sort of the willingness and, and desire to just travel across the, the country, you know, the city effectively. Uh, but I thought that was just such an inspiring so break, idea. Break that down for people who have never been in Singapore. How does a card work? How do you get it? And how is it used? Sure. So when you first get there, you've, you've got to get it uh, just by walking in any 7-Eleven. 7-Elevens are everywhere. And you, you know, you pay for a $20 or $30 card. And everywhere you go, they have the same, and this is what's key, is they have the exact same uh, payment you know, receptacle for the card. So you just swipe the card in front of it. You walk on to uh, the metro and you could travel around anywhere you want. Swipe it when you leave. It's similar to the BART system in San Francisco. and uh, But they also use it across buses. So the same system works. You walk in a bus or you, you walk in a cab and you could just swipe it in the receptacle of the cab. And I think that that's where I've never seen the consistency across any other uh, infrastructure like the way Singapore had it. 
What's the and technology behind it? Is it Magstrip uh, or uh, NFC or it's, chip it's, card? It's got to be NFC. Um, yeah. I, I would believe, at least, yeah. Because you're tapping the card primarily uh, in front of something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I imagine it's a passive tag NFC chip. And, and your experience is people love it uh, in Singapore? I mean, there's... They love it. And I think, you know, like anything, you don't realize how much you love it until you have it taken away. Uh, you know, we actually, yeah. if we, if we, if we go to Vegas together, you know, Vegas, I believe still doesn't have Uber or Lyft at least yeah. a few months ago. And, you know, oh. when you go there and you're in the hotel and you try to order a cab and they're saying they'll be there in 20 minutes, maybe, and you're trying to describe how to get there and, you know, you're getting calls and trying to coordinate like that's, that's really annoying. And I think, when you leave Singapore and you go to, you know, Malaysia, which is right across the bridge, uh, Kuala Lumpur is just, it, it doesn't have the same system. So you start to feel the inefficiencies of a, a rigid, inconsistent um, payment infrastructure. And I think that was sort of my first inspiration to saying, wow, it makes such a big difference, right? And I think, you know, Martin Tamizi was particularly uh inspirational when he said, you know, I want to build something that contributes the most value to society by building it on a layer that can do that. Right. And for him, that's payments. Um, and I think payments sort of is the only industry that gives that, that layer across every other industry to sort of boost or hinder it. Right. Absolutely. Did you, did you want to like enter the payment systems, uh, because of that, uh, Metro uh, tap that you saw and that you used? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, it wasn't. So what happened? What happened in Singapore after that? So Singapore, after Singapore, um, the it was a contract. So after six months, I took a uh, position at an aerospace defense company. It was a it was about three hundred person software company and hardware company, and they developed radar systems for the military's UAVs, the Predator and Drone. Um, the Global Hawk for uh, Northrop Grumman. And this was in Los Angeles. This is how I actually moved to California. And um, that was such an amazing opportunity. Worked there for two years, um, but I got stuck in this sort of corporate, um, I think what a lot of people feel, and this is what I think I wish I was able to hear, they're stuck in this sort of corporate mold. And if you're in there for over five years, I think it's really, really hard to escape. Um, and it's hard to escape because of the mental patterns that you develop over these five years. Um, we can get into that, but that's what I did after Singapore. And I worked on the uh, hardware and systems engineering teams. Um, and we were building a project called BAMS, which is Broad Area Maritime Surveillance um, project and it's it's about the size of a microwave and we had about 100 people working on it and this microwave sized device would go in the front of a UAV about a maybe uh, 60 foot it's a, it's a large UAV and these things would fly around uh, in the US military and whenever a missile or something was shot at it uh, it would take over the control system and automatically avoid um, the the missile coming towards the towards the vehicle so that's what we uh successfully developed but like anything in the defense industry you know there's large ups and downs there's a lot of uh bureaucracy there's a lot of things that made it particularly unappealing um so i you know sort of had this desire to search out for something new and payments really wasn't even a thought in my mind um until i went to the coloft which is this co-working space in santa monica uh california um it's an amazing place. I think that there's sort of this large macro trend towards building these co-working spaces, but 
this was the first of its kind that I have ever seen. Um, you walk in and it's maybe 5,000 square feet with maybe 60 or so, 30 or so people working during the day. And they're all working on their independent projects. You know, now it's very typical, but uh, five years ago, this was still a new concept uh, to where people are, you know, two, three people deep and they're just, you know, ingrained in their, in their little projects. And now I think there's well over 10 successful companies that have come out of Coloft um, in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, it's just such an inspiring place to be. I met, you know, Kyle, my business partner now, and Nate, my business partner back then, um, and a majority of my friends through this, this one uh, co-working space. Now, would you call that an incubator type of environment? Was that the relationship with the um, provider there? It's much different. It's not an incubator in that they have no vested interest in your company. They don't take equity. Uh, it's literally just rent. Um, but what they do that's amazing is they focus the attention of the people around tech and around startups and around everything that would be valuable to you if you're trying to do exactly what I was doing, trying to leave your job, trying to get into startups and you know develop skills and a network and an idea and traction around that. So from that perspective, it's just exactly what people needed at that point. Um, you know, and I think as soon as a city has this sort of pivotal location that people know to, to sort of circle around, they're just, it's just a snowball effect. You know, Los Angeles now I think is maybe second, you know, maybe behind, right behind the Bay area with New York, right up there. I think Los Angeles and New York are, are pretty close in terms yeah. of the, the technology scene. You know, at one time, uh, Pasadena was number one. Um, Bill, well, yeah, Gross, Bill Gross and Idea Lab. Idea Lab. Idea Lab actually started some of these co-working spaces and, and incubators. And I had a little involvement with some of the companies at that era. And it was a, a beautiful time for Pasadena. I mean, you had Jet Propulsion Laboratory. You had a whole lot of people from uh, uh, Caltech. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm surprised that there is not more of a Stanford-like culture uh, in Pasadena again. There's some beginnings of that but you know not not close to the bay area you know the thing the thing with pasadena those are extremely smart guys i've been there uh, oh, yeah. you know, a number of times but they the 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 physical distance is just it's it, it really weighs heavily you know if well, you're, on, if you're on, oh yeah it's if you're on the west side area. you know you just can't do it it's you know an hour and a half in heavy traffic maybe two hours during rush hour so it just becomes you know not not a feasible option you got yeah, to live there and that's really the only thing there so it's sort of isolating and you know if there ever was sort of a developed ecosystem beyond idea lab i think there it'd be compelling um but still you know lax the the airport is you know an hour and a half away and that's 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 tough, and Santa Monica now is really you know a, a benchmark. You just, you just have some amazing companies here, um, so. Well, I think the entertainer entertainment industry actually produced that ecosystem with high end graphics and things like like that, and and of course the defense uh, sector is uh, mm -hmm. still seeding that, just like yourself. I mean, I've probably hundreds of people I know that have actually walk the same path and then wind up going into different startups, payments, all sorts of things. So mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Within, I, within the payments, uh, you know, uh, ecosystem, would you say that the Bay Area is the mecca of uh, payments or is it in the U.S., would it be some other city? 
I do. So here's the, here's what I believe about, and I've lived in Austin, I've lived in Santa Monica and I lived in San Francisco each for about a year, Los Angeles and Santa Monica a little more. And what I've noticed about the, the three cities and sort of the different tiers of technology um, in those cities that if you're building, if technology is your core competence and your biggest advantage, the Bay Area is by far the best place to be. You know, if you're, if you're going to outperform someone on technology, that's where you need to be. If you're building something new and that just hasn't been introduced to the world from a conceptual standpoint, or you're building a marketplace, or for some other reason, you have an advantage to be in an area that has a demographic that's stronger than San Francisco, then it's an advantage to be in that city. Uh, but, but San Francisco, particularly the Bay Area, just has the best engineers. I mean, hands down, bar none, they're just the smartest people in the world. So if you're going to build technology as your core competence, right, you're going to outperform something that already exists on some new, new facet or some new idea, that's the place you need to be. Um, and you can only hire to a great magnitude in an area where there's available workers and and for better or for worse, it's in the Bay Area. But in the Bay Area, but, all, but I was asked, you know, but I was asking more of uh, the, let's say the the overall you know, uh, picture, if you will. I mean, is 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 the Bay Area the place where all the payments people are, or you know, all the payment companies are? Because to me, it would seem like Chicago or New York yeah, or you, Atlanta well, would be the. It is diverse by brain trees in Chicago. Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't seem to be centralized around any particular. To, at it's least according to how far back you want to go, too. I mean, Omaha, Nebraska has, because um, the first data presence there has a tremendous number of old school uh, payment individuals. Um, Texas, Dallas, uh, Atlanta, some parts of uh, of you know the Midwest, Chicago, certainly New York. And that's probably due, to the, probably due to the evolution of the payment industry, right? I mean, it's not a Absolutely. perfectly linear um, growth. It's It's sort of, you know, innovations at different points led to companies that happened to develop. You know, if Braintree, Venmo were both in uh, San Francisco, then you could argue that, you know, that would be a, a much larger case for that's the, the capital mm-hmm. of the industry. But Yeah, you know, you know uh, if even, you look even at... Well, you know, actually, it was convenience of having a bank uh, that would work with them. And uh, it really kind of played into the small, uh, you know, country area that they grew up in. And then, you know, they had a you know relationship with the bank through a family member, which started that. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Southern California has been um, uh, ground zero for uh, a lot of uh, payment uh, merchant processing innovation for past 35 years. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the basic companies started out here. A lot of the sales companies are still out here. Mm-hmm. A lot of the growth is still here. If you break down a map and you look at where the origination of where most of these merchant contracts are coming from, they're coming from a 50-mile radius in Southern California, about 85% yes. of the sales in yes. the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not changing. All the squares of the world is not changing that pattern. It's growing. Because if you if you look for the industry pundits, they're, they're predominantly you know centered around the Atlanta area, the New York, a bit in Chicago. And surprisingly for me, I found out uh, Austin, Texas, and yeah. D.C., Mm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, I almost break it down and say there's no capital of the payment industry. But if you're looking at particular verticals, you know, Brian makes a great point. There's so many independent sales organizations, merchant processors in Southern California, um, mm. for whatever reason. I don't know if that's the culture or the water or whatever it is. Well, I it really little- started with one of the most successful companies uh, located out here in the uh, uh, late 1970s, uh, early 1980s. There's also and just really a lot of merchants up. here. I mean, there's it, just well, a, such a huge... You know, there's so many stores. It's funny. You know, you you see all the technology innovation, of course, coming from the Bay Area, but you see a lot of the extrapolation of it coming through the sales channels still that are coming through Southern California. And I see it all the time. Uh, I see companies that start up in the Bay Area and they try their own way at it and then they wind up talking to people who are within these sales channels. Hmm. Mm. So anyways, Mike, from... uh Koloft, what happened? So Koloft, Koloft, I was a, and this is what I think is really important. Koloft, I was there nights and weekends. So right after, right after work, I would leave at about four. I'd get there on seven a.m., leave at four, and uh, I would I would drive straight to the Koloft every day, seven days a week, and I would get there and. You know, there's sort of this second shift. Um, at around 6 p.m., there's this um, shift from the, the guys working during the day to the guys working at night. And I, I sort of see this across all co-working spaces. It's almost a, um, a macroeconomic uh, effect where you have guys working full-time jobs going to try and meet and get work done on their side projects. And this is this is what I lived. I lived this for about six months and met some amazing people, went to all the events and you sort of hit this this tipping point in your mind where you realize that you can't both be in the pool and be out of the pool. Um, and I would go and, and I met Kyle, who Kyle Hill is now my my business partner. Um, and Nate Stewart at the time was introduced to me from the founder of the Coloft, uh, Avesta. And he made the introduction saying, you know, Nate's got this idea. He's an incredibly smart uh, developer and he's got this good connection and, and uh, sort of roots to build something really interesting. Um, and that really interesting project and company now is called Zing Checkout. And I met Zing, I met Nate and he just had this, just this vision for what he wanted to build. And sort of when you meet someone that you, you sort of, you get a sense of people, how committed they are to the work that they're doing. And Nate's one of those people that you instantly can understand that there's nothing more important in the world than building this company, like nothing and nothing will stop him. And when, when I sort of felt that, that just life and that vigor, it was, it was, I couldn't put it down. And I think some people are going to respond differently to that. Uh, but I think the key is exposing yourself to people who feel like that. Uh, because I think the, the ultimate tragedy, right. And I think this is what we, what we are really talking about when we're talking about different countries and their technology scene and their opportunity for innovation is the ability to talk to people about this through an introduction that's, um, that's valuable enough to have the conversation. So, you know, Nate had built Zing for about six months to a year, just in his apartment, just, you know, toying around with the idea. He'd been a consultant for Red Chapter Clothing, uh, which is an extremely fast growing uh, clothing company based in Southern California. Now they're, you know, tens of stores and they're doing fantastic. But at the time they were started by the two brothers, um, where they would consult with Nate to build the website and they would express to Nate, you know, Nate, our biggest problem is that when we go to events, we don't have the 
uh, software to communicate to our store in real time what our inventory is, right? We don't have the payment and reporting tools to track uh, our sales throughout the day at, at multiple locations. And if you wanted to do that, you'd have to export a CSV and you'd have to use QuickBooks and, uh, and it was really a hassle. So the idea of uh, real-time web-based point-of-sale system, a point-of-sale was really an interesting um, opportunity. And I think Nate was one of the first people in the world to see that this was going to happen and also have the skills to say, I can make this happen. And when that light switch went on in his head and he said, I'm going to bring this to life, you know, I was like, this is, you know, what better opportunity in life could you have to work with someone like this? What year was that? Uh, this was in 2011. Yeah, 2011. Um, so, you know, we just brainstormed about how this is going to work. Um, none of us, you know, neither Nate or I had been in a startup before, understood, um, you know, the process of, you know, equity. So you're sort of going through this initial stage of, you know, developing the legal structure and you're trying to figure out how it works at the same time as actually doing it. So I think there's no better way to learn something than by being forced to do it that same day. Um, so we, we hired a lawyer, Dan Wu, an amazing guy, and he helped us walk through the process of creating the company, um, structuring the cap table, um, in preparation for, you know, multiple rounds of funding. And, you know, we were on our way. And at the time it was really a, it was a, it was a night project for me, um, but a full-time project for Nate and that he was consulting with uh, Red Chapter Clothing. And, you know, an important point to note, I think, is that if you go from consulting to building your own product, it's important early on to develop the legal agreement to split those two, right? If you're consulting with, um, you know, a hospital or something and they have this project or they express this pain and you start to build on it and you tinker with it as a developer, you need to cut the tie and say, everything I build on this new uh, idea is completely mine. And I think that was one of the, the things that Nate could have gone back and done better was saying, you know, if I work on this nights and I understand your problems and I build something, I'm going to come to you and sell it to you rather than have you own it. Um, so now Red Chapter is a, is a partial owner in Zing and, uh, you know, a valuable one at that, but they really contributed the early ideas. But I think if we really separated the two legally, um, it would have been a more clean process. <clears throat> um, so at that time, there was no other web-based point-of-sale uh, solution out there? That time, if you were to punch into Google web-based point-of-sale in 2011, you would see overwhelmingly iMongo. Uh, yeah. and, and, and iMongo was this... I believe it was developed in the Philippines. So we really couldn't, there wasn't too much behind the company, but boy, they just, they were the only ones out there. Um, the only ones, you know, that, that we could find and they, they were just terrible. I mean, the, you know, I hate to ever insult a company, but the feature set was unusable, uh, which I believe is a fairly objective way to assess it. And it just was, it was inspiration, right? Because you'd see all of these merchants say, you know, I, I need ways to, to maintain my inventory and sales reporting for multiple stores. Uh, but iMongo is the best tool. And, you know, I think it was only available on Windows and, you know, you, you had to bring your computer there and you had to have a separate payment terminal, you know, a, a, a 500 connected to it and your swiping cards and it would crash all the time. So there was just knowing how HTML5 worked, um, and, and sort of the technology in place to build something better, that was really 
the uh, the gateway. But that was the only thing that was out there at the time. Yeah, how did you deal with uh, the debate even in 2011, uh, native app versus web-based app and, you know, all of the uh, politics around that? Still, still raging today. Still raging today. I think you just have to look at what your customers are more willing to use as opposed to what you prefer to build. Um, we had a strength in HTML5 as opposed to iOS and Android really wasn't a, um, a market-dominating uh, a platform at the time, but also that, you know, look at what your customers are going to use, right? They go to trade shows, they have their computer in their store. They, they you know, Lightspeed is a fantastic and beautiful company and they build native iOS, but originally they built HTML5 and they built web-based tech because that's the easiest is the quickest to uh, iterate on, on dev cycles. And it's, it's the easiest to use across multiple platforms, right? We would have people on Android. Did you meet with resistance uh, from uh, VCs and Angel? and Not as much because you always know that it's coming, right? You always have a better experience on an iPad. You know, App, uh, Square is, I don't believe they even have, I could be wrong, but an HTML5 version of it. No, um, no you they know, don't. They're really an iOS dev shop, so... Yeah. So that's their core competency. But I, I don't think that that is what our customers really want. You know, if you're going to buy the whole system up front, you know, you pay for the whole square and you pay for the register. But that's that's remember, that's a few years later. You know, yeah. in the early stages, people just had their little their little uh, notebooks and their you know, they weren't using iPads at the time. They didn't have any of the the MacBooks lying around. They were just, you know, practical, pragmatic uh, yeah, Dell computers, computers, Dell computers. Around. Yep. Exactly. So, uh, what what did you think of QuickBooks POS at that moment? Because I mean, theoretically, they should have been in a position to dominate this. Yeah, QuickBooks and Intuit. That's that's such an interesting company because they're everywhere, and they were the you know biggest requests. You know, can you integrate to QuickBooks all the time? Exactly. Um, and I think it's important. You know, taking a step back, another lesson is in point of sale in particular. You always get verticalized. And what I mean is you develop a specific feature set that becomes valuable for your vertical, uh, your target customer. And it's, it's difficult to transition that easily into others. So Square, you know, it was developed around coffee shops. Those guys would go into coffee shops and they would ask coffee shop owners how it works and small restaurant owners. So you can start to see the the most valuable and biggest segment of their customers is coffee shops and small yeah. restaurants. You know, for us, it was apparel. Uh, we had uh, an apparel company as our consultant where we learned all the ideas. Um, but then from that point, once we built their answer, you know, we sort of hit base camp. Then it's a matter of, okay, how do you integrate? How do you build, you know, 35 different vertical markets into this? Because each have different feature sets and requirements. And when it comes to ver- point of sale in particular, uh, features are everything. I mean, you can have a beautiful design, but the beautiful design of the user is not usually the one who's deciding, you know, which point of sale to use. It's usually the owner or the manager saying, we're going to use this uh, based on features and uh, cost. uh, And and if there's any risk to the decision, Um, but it really comes down to features. And for us, it was, it was apparel for first, and now it's verticalizing into other, um, other industries. And what's interesting is you see other, you know, our, our competition in some sense, um, was developed into bike, you know, one was developed into bike shops. So they yeah. owned a vast majority of those. And um, it's interesting how it forms um, the yeah, point of sale industry. What was your impression, impression at that point? Why a POS system with the most popular accounting software on the planet 
didn't take hold. Hmm. I mean, by anybody's I, estimate, QuickBooks POS is an utter failure. It is. And I think, I think QuickBooks had an amazing distribution strategy, right? They would, they would work with all the accountants and once they got into the society and the, the community of the accountants and they built something that was much, much easier for them. So they, ha- they all had an incentive to use it. And once they did, then you had small businesses adopt it because it, it was the best product on the market. Um, and they had just amazing adoption. But QuickBooks point of sale, I think, was lacking in the usability. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty janky software. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything about the development of, of the product. It was acquired and then hobbled together. It was it never really the same. Was. development team it really uh, was and I, and I think it was a, it was it would crash often people just had a bad connotation with it um, you know it didn't get great reviews it sort of never hit broad market adoption um, so we never really saw them as as a big competitor there you know we almost split it bec- between a, a incumbents you know micros is is one of the largest um, and then you have you know the the new guys and they were more in the incumbents category and they didn't do a great great job. Now, did you see the iOS coming as what Square wound up doing? Sort of, unfortunately, in, I, in my view, locked themselves into the closet of uh, an iPad, essentially limiting the market market reach and penetration. Did you see that coming down the road potentially for uh, for this product uh, that you would move to an iPad, or we were always going to be agnostic to the platform? Yeah, I think the vision early on really is to be agnostic, and the vision behind agnostic is to to work for everyone, right? I think by building an iPad system, you're convincing people to, to move to Apple products. And that can be better for some people, but it's not better for everyone. You know, not everyone needs a beautiful design. We would have, you know, gun shops in Texas use us where they don't care at all about design is, is sort of, um, you know, cl- clash to say that that doesn't, that's not their even top five decisions. Um, stability, speed, uptime, um, Feature cost. set, yeah, cost. These are the things that matter to people. So, building uh, iOS is not, it is not, and it was not the, the number one consideration. Uh, you know, if people had an interest, the iPad certainly picked up and it became huge. But even then, there's limitations in the iPad. Printing was was difficult. If you have multiple uh, USB terminals, uh, you're going to have a credit card swiper, a barcode scanner. You know, if you're going to inboard uh, inventory, you know, how are you going to manage those separate? ports, there's, there's technical limitations to the iPad. The iPad was not developed to be a point of sale system, right? It's developed to be a platform for a lot of different industries, uh, but it, it doesn't fit, particularly fit ex- well for point of sale across the board, right? It fits for coffee shops beautifully, but they don't really, they, they don't um, onboard inventory the way an apparel store would or a grocery store would, right? They don't communicate with uh, portable devices that scan all the barcodes across the store. So there's like limitations technically. Well, you know, the interesting thing that I find is a lot of the iOS-based systems like Square don't maintain an active inventory. And it's always shocking to me when I'm talking to people who are otherwise experts in the in the industry. And they speak about these products and I say, you know, have you ever looked at the inventory function for the Square Register? And I said, well, of course, so you can have an inventory. I go, no, you have you can have a list of SKUs, but it doesn't show active inventory. And there's no way to do that at this current point. And it always was shocking to me when I sat down with insiders unofficially, mostly. And I would, this is back in 2010, I would start talking about why is there not an inventory system here? What's the thinking behind that? And still here we are in 2014, no inventory system. So that dramatically 
restricts the market. And here you guys were based primarily centered around the inventory system. What's your feeling on that? I mean, isn't yeah, that it, important? Yeah, inventory is huge. And you have to think from the store owner, right? We always say, what's it like for the store owner, right? They, if they get shipments, if they get boxes of clothing, or if they get boxes of of coffee or, or if they're a grocery store and they get, you know, pallets of new items shipped to them, right? The first thing they've got to do after they sign off on the delivery is scan the items into inventory, sure. right? And if you're, if you're a coffee shop, this is not a big deal, right? Because you get, you know, maybe seven different bags of beans, right? If you're a small business where you can just see, say you're a small, um, you know, breakfast spot. You just see the, the inventory. There's no need to Im- to keep well, a digital version of it for some, right? Yeah, but, but, but you know, but for you us, there the was the ability to build real. You know, a, a, a lot of people feel that Square's ultimate goal was to create big data, right? And the thing that makes big data work is to look at exactly how much is going in and exactly how much is going out. And it's very hard to get that when you're just using a list of SKUs that are on file. You know, how many how many muffins did I make? I made 25, okay? And you are looking at your terminal, I now have 24, now I have 23. This is an important thing for a small business because tracking all the inventory, uh, you know, a, a bakery, which is a big square a location, uh, how much coffee is left you know, right. they, they produce. Here's the, know, here's the difference though. Y- you are correct. However, small business owners oftentimes from my perspective have a lot of other things that they perceive to be more valuable going on. Oh, sure. So inventory takes work and the, you know, the, the, the job of the technologist and the software provider is to make the onboarding and inventory management as easy as possible. Uh, right. You want to have them scan it. Ideally they don't do any work, uh, but you have to somehow maintain that inventory and it's extremely valuable, right? You know, like my, their idea was to have real-time inventory of all the stores around you so that when you have a need for, you know, a wrench, you can know exactly where to go and who has the wrench and you can compare prices. But this never really, you know, never really developed into reality. And the reason for it is that the fragmentation across point-of-sale systems and the ability to keep real-time inventory is is very, very difficult um, because everyone's going to use, you know, Aloha, Dinnerware, Micros, and and they're all going to use different systems that don't talk to each other. They're very difficult to integrate with. I'm actually good friends with with uh, uh, one of the the, the t- uh, engineers that tabbed out, um, which we can get to later, but they've integrated to more point of sale systems than any other company. And you know, it's it's. I talked to them about it. It's very difficult. You know, there's all different technology stacks, and there's there's poles in the system. Um, so inventory is huge, and it's it's managed well, uh, but not across multiple uh, platforms or. So what did you see as your biggest barrier? You're in the middle of this, right? You're you're gun ho and you're out there getting this product developed. What what starts happening? What you know, you and your founder are there and you're you're building it up. What do you see as your first stumbling blocks, challenges, yeah, mountains boy, to climb? Totally. And I I <laughs> I would take it back to a lesson. Uh, you know, if I were to, if I were to start from day one again, I think it's just really, really understanding and valuing your customers because they are, even when they're, you know, five of them, um, they're the most valuable people in the world. And I think there was always this idea and, and like essential thirst for building something scalable and huge, but you can't, you know, you can't go from zero to 60 without going 30 miles an hour. So, um, you know, early on it was, it was the early customer feedback, they would say things to us like, Hey, we need, um, 
you know, we need multiple uh, store support or we need um, multiple tax, you know, there's taxes in different states uh, across sales tax or they, they would have specific feature requests that were you know, difficult to build instantly. You know, they took work like anything else. But I think it's how the most challenging thing was how you answer customers when you don't have an answer yet, right? It's how you keep them happy and on your system. And that's sort of an art. It's sort of a subjective human art to say, you know, sorry, we don't have the feature you need, but don't leave us yet. Or, you know, sign up with us now because we have these other things available to you. And in the next, you know, month, we're going to have this feature that you need or, or convincing them it's not essential today, right? Because as a store owner, there's a hundred things you need, but you need to prioritize and say, okay, this is the best and this will do the job. How did you um, mechanize it? How did you mechanize the growth of the feature set? And and was there editing? Was there a voting? How did this go about? Yeah, um, we actually we actually uh, got into a Excel sheet and we created a X Y axis of difficulty versus desire. And we set we we threw on every feature we had and we used Trello as a management tool. Trello is amazing and beautiful. Every time we would get a request for something, we would throw it in Trello. And at the, once a week, at the end of the week, we would sit down and we would say, okay, this is the number of times we request this feature was requested. Uh, this is the number of of perceived requests in the future, i.e. how big is this going to be? How valuable is this going to be if we build it? Um, and then how difficult is it to build, right? So how long does it take? And if you create this, this access and you say, um, you know, these are the most these are the most difficult things that take the longest that have the least effect. You know, don't worry about those. But the ones that have the biggest effect that takes the least amount of time, you know, build those, build those out because that leads to quick results. Wonderful. That converts the customer. And I think that's the way you have to do it. Otherwise, especially in, in, a, in a software platform that's as complex as point of sale, where there's so many different types of customers and so many different features, you have to categorize a very organized way to attack that. Now, Mike, um, um, the thing that I've been arguing uh, very vigorously for most tech companies that would listen to me, and I am fortunate enough, there's a lot that are listening to me right now, um, is, <laughs> the, I, I'm, you know, this is this, the, just this last week, I, I've, I've had 10 founders, and, you know, uh, some of them have been listening to our, our podcast here, uh, talk about this with me. And um, my, my point is this, how can you build a feature set if you don't have a sales channel, right? So I believe the paralysis that most technology companies have is that they build it, they feel very firmly about the features that they're building, there's debate internally, technologists will debate it, and then they feel very positive about the editing that they're doing. There's some that are very proud of the fact that we edit 99% of all the features out of the product. And that sounds great. It makes good headlines on Fast Company. But when it comes time to actually deal with real merchants, a true sales channel, not the internet, not a Google click here, sign up five minutes later, you're, you're processing. Did you feel that that sales channel feedback really assisted you since essentially you were one of the salespeople there, right? Yeah, hugely. Um, I think especially in the beginning, people underestimate the value of sales. Um, and sales almost carries this negative connotation for some reason. I think that there's a lot of, you know, there, there can be dirty business in sales between oh, yeah. you lying to people or, you know, I think particularly the merchant processing business has uh, developed this this sort of negative reputation. Um, but essentially it's a, it's a, 
it's you're a, you're a vendor, right? You're providing something that people need. But the the difficulty is how do you distinguish upon which of these proposed vendors are the best fit, right? And that that is where I think it's the most difficult assessment for a merchant. And I think the internet helps a lot in that, right? There's reviews. There's there's ways to quantify uh, quantify which vendors offer things that you need. Uh, there's you know stability, uptime. All, you could research a ton, and the internet is the tool for that. But at the end of the day. Um, you know, even Yelp, you know, they have, you know, hundreds of salespeople and they're going to call merchants individually, right? I, I'm not sure if Yelp from day one imagined they would, but there's no other way they would be successful without those salespeople. And if you open look at table also. open table as well, oh, the list goes on and on. And if you look at small business, any small business point of sale system or any point, point of sale system in general that's been developed, um, you'll notice that they, they all have the same um, sales channel, you know, they'll have 600, uh, resellers, you know, the reseller market is huge in point of sale. Um, and I think how you fit into the reseller channel is, is a huge opportunity and not a lot of companies figure that out. Um, but, but direct salespeople as well, um, you need them to sort of get that feedback and you need people who are going to give you the feedback from the customer that helps you develop the product, right? That's how you sort of get that cycle going. I think believing- it's early days, right? You're out there. You're actually talking to merchants because you're one of the founders and you're trying to get them to sign up. How did that, you know, that's early in the afternoon. You come back in the office late at night. How did that inform the development? How did it feel? And did you feel conflict? Because from a technologist standpoint, you wanted this to happen. And from a, a reality, practical and pragmatic standpoint, you know, Y happened instead of X. Yeah, totally. I think it would be a beautiful world if we could build something and people would find us through SEO and they would sign up online and we would never talk to them and they would, you know, import, import their inventory automatically. But the reality is that this doesn't happen, right? And this rarely happens. Um, you know, as much as we see, you know, the adoption of say something like Dropbox. So there's many platforms where people will sign up and you don't need to talk to anyone. Point of sale is not one of those industries. Point of sale, you actually need to speak with someone most of the time um, just to get the reassurance that this is, especially in the early days, you know, if you have a platform that's, you know, vetted and easy enough, that's the end goal. But I think a lot of companies don't seem to cross that chasm of talking to everyone, even Stripe, you know, Patrick talks about in the early days, you know, we talk to every customer, we help them uh, go through the sign up process. And if you don't do that, if you don't have that hunger and sort of desire to, to do sales and onboarding, you, know, you can't get to that second stage of being, um, an, an easy flowing, you know, so, use the advantage of software, right? <clears throat> so, uh, you know, an interesting point, we had an advisor, one of the things we realized was, you know, as much as we would love to just onboard customers and have them sign up on the site and import inventory and their credit card and, and have it all be gravy, we realized that the world doesn't operate that way today. So we actually um, took a move. And I think, you know, if coming from a early stage startup, this is the one of the best things that we ever did was we found an industry expert. Um, and in our case, Chester Ritchie was it. Chester had been an Chester, earlier, yeah. Chester had been an early engineer at Apple. He left to work for a, uh, uh, point of sale company, Cam Commerce, and brought them now to over a $200 million valuation and just an amazingly smart guy. Now he works at WorldPay and he's a senior vice president there, partnerships. But he really implanted the idea that you need to have sales. 
it wasn't even a question, right? And he explained how cam- comp cameras did it. And they had 600 salespeople across the country and how they set up their sales structure and how they incentivize salespeople and what to look for. Um, and not to say that we're going to get to that scale tomorrow, but it's just such an invaluable thing to have someone like that in your team. So I think seeking out people with um, industry expertise, especially in distribution across payment systems is probably the smartest thing that you can do early on. So where did it go? What what was your journey from there yeah. to your next venture? So so we raised money with with Zing Checkout. Uh, we signed up Tesla Motors in Menlo Park, which really wow. helped us. Yeah, really helped us sort of get uh, visibility. Um, they while well, Tesla that happen? Was, How did yeah. you sign Tesla? Uh, so it's good. <laughs> so Tesla, uh, we we went to the um, launch conference in San Francisco and. Tesla happened to be right next to us and, uh, and Nate was there with his wife and, you know, just got talking to the guys at Tesla and, uh, you know, the head of business development was there and he said, you know, we've had, we've had build a whiteboard or sorry, we've had build a point of sale system on the whiteboard for the last three months and it's never gotten done. And they, they didn't know how they were going to do it. And when I mean, you know, their inventory I mean, their actual clothing, the things that they sell in the store, aside from the car, the car is completely, you know, integrated to their whole uh, flow system. Um, But they had no way of really managing that. And that was, it was kind of a pain. And, you know, if you're going to build a complete experience for the customer, you know, you really want to have a a beautiful way to manage that, um, even through the inventory in the store. So we, you know, we followed up with them aggressively and we uh, met up with them in their Menlo Park office and we saw what they were using, which is Excel and pen and paper. And, uh, and then we showed them what we had and we you know hats off to Nate um, you know just worked tirelessly to build a uh, a, a platform that would be best for them you know we had this beautiful Tesla colored um uh, interface and we have the ability for the customer to just sign right on there. You know, everything was there for them. And I think when you make something easiest for the customer to buy, that's when you become the best option. Right. And we were just so easy for Tesla to say, yes, we built everything for them. We were always on call. You know, we treated Tesla like we should have treated every other customer, exactly. <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Um, now th- th- this customization, and this is another theme that I am very firmly about is that, to be successful, you have to be able to allow customization down to the nth degree. Because you're on such a portable platform, HTML5, the ability to Teslaize your POS system was inordinately magnitudes easier than if you were on another system. You know, not recompiling, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you felt that that was critical, right? That was a critical thing that made them shift from you know, maybe building in-house, in a sense, they really did build in-house because you were like a custom programming team for them. Yeah, we were. Uh, I think, you know, we we had the Tesla logo on there, Tesla colors, you know, everything was Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. So having that just, it it made it, it made them feel like they were part of it. You know, I always believe if you're ever going, if you have this great idea and you work within a team of people in order to get them to adopt the idea, you have to make them feel like they created it, right? And what we did successfully with Tesla is we made Tesla feel like they built the point of sale, right? They're still, they're still paying us and it's still our platform and it's our product, but we work with them so intimately and we would be so quick on the dev cycles. You know, if you have something in the afternoon, we'll have it done by, you know, tomorrow morning. And, and like that made them feel like, wow, this is, this is mine. You know, I own this. And from a, from a human emotional standpoint, that was so important. Um, 
you know, especially even when, you know, presenting to large companies, uh, I think if you can get them to believe that this is our product and, and this is our ownership, um, you're just the tool acting to create it, you know, that's where you want to be. And that's what we did. Well, I really think it's the future, too. It's one of the reasons why Starbucks, it was essentially an in-house and outhouse uh, sort of consulting environment. And then ultimately, they took it in-house. But I think a lot of large and medium retailers are scoffing at the lack of flexibility of uh, mobile payment systems, wallets, et cetera, in the market. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a big problem, and very few companies are really there to address it. Uh, you know, you have different people who have different parts of the technology stack. You know, you have the stripes and the balance of the world, but they're relying upon the developers to interface with the end recipient of the product. And I would say it's that last mile where I'm seeing a critical failure. And then yeah. the companies have general products, all the way from PayPal, you know, Square. You know, all they want to do is create a general product. They don't even want to talk about segmentations of markets, and um, and so you have this big chasm that nobody's filling. And and frankly, um, I, I think it's one of the reasons why you acquired that company, and why I think the the future growth is in that direction. Is uh, you know, have a toolbox of every tool imaginable, and then customize it like a, a, a bespoke tailor would mm -hmm. to the individual merchant and to do it with such speed and grace that you would blow them away. And I, I think you can scale that. Easily. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I almost look at it from what's the most valuable lessons that I would want to hear at different stages, right? And if you're working at a full-time job right now and you're listening to this and you're saying, how do I get into the payment industry? Or maybe it's not even about the payment industry. There's just something about it that you like and you want to escape your job and work on a startup. I think putting yourself in a position around other people is is the th is the number one thing that's going to get you to mentally believe that you know leaving is not a big deal, right? If you have a soft, cushy job, my brother works at Microsoft, and you know, you get, you kind of get in that mindset. It's difficult to leave. So if you're an early stage guy and you're thinking about how to get into it, constantly be thinking about your next project. And eventually it, the jumping in the pool will be easy. If you're working at a company now and you're saying, how do I grow it? Right. I have a cu couple customers. How do I grow it? You're, you're probably thinking too much in terms of SEO, online sign up, right? You need to go and talk to people. Um, and I think those, those two lessons along the road were just so important. You know, go and talk to your customers, go and sit down with them and actually draw out the features that they want. And then now you have it, now it's easy for you, right? If you're, if your customer tells you exactly what they want, you know, your job is easy. All you have to distinguish upon is what they, you know, maybe don't actually need, uh, which is a much easier task than figuring the, the former out. Um, but then I think, you know, Brian, um, I transitioned to Flowtab. Yeah. How did um, you get, so you're talking about transitioning from, you know, a, a you know, military contractor mm -hmm. job to a startup and the startup's doing great and you're kind of feeling good. What, what gave you the sense of security to leap into something else? I mean, that's also an important thing because we all grow. Yeah, how sure, we, sure, sure. And I think, you know, with any founder change, there's always going to be, there's always going to be a lot of emotions that carry around it. Sure. Um, but Kyle, you know, is one of my, one of my best friends. He also is a designer. He had his own design firm called Khaleesi down in Los Angeles. Extremely talented, extremely motivated guy. Just like Nate carries that same diehard personality where you're just, you know he's going to succeed. So he, um, you know, he started Flowtab with, 
him and I were brainstorming the idea, but it was really his baby. And he moved to San Francisco, raised a seed round of capital. We actually published this whole story on TechCrunch and on the website uh, to the likes of which have just gotten tremendous feedback from people all over the world saying that they've changed or modified their ideas. And, it, you know, it's been such an amazing journey there. But, um, you know, I joined I joined Flowtab really because I felt the potential there across mobile ordering at a different stage of the payment system was was so interesting, right? Because you have point of sale systems and that's an inevitable shift. It's like steering the Titanic, right? It's going to happen. It's a much larger, bigger shift, but then you have mobile payments and mobile ordering. And I felt that just had the explosive opportunity to where you know, you could you could build something and sell it to someone and they could say yes, as opposed to you're working within the constraints of the merchant that if they don't need what you have, uh, you can't sell them that. You can't really walk into a store and sell someone a point of sale system because they have a system that works. When they realize they have a problem, they're going to search out for an answer, right? So so point of sale is not direct sales the way uh, Flowtab was because it's an answer layer product. And I think this is a big uh, distinguishing quality that, that is that important really to understand. Was that really in your thought process? Because I know a lot of people in POS, that that's not in their thought process. They just think that they're going to change and scrap existing, you know, infrastructure. So you're thinking about how can I get involved in, in, in let me, an let ancillary me you, way? Let me, let me tell you something, Brian. Sure. Uh, this is this is the non beautiful part that I think a lot of founders don't like to talk about. You know, we went down to we went down across the coast. We went down to Huntington Beach. You know, we're in Santa Monica, so we went down Long Beach. We went down to uh, Laguna Beach, and we would go to all these small merchants who we had developed a system that I knew was by far the best in the market. And we would walk in there, and we would say, Hey, yeah. Uh, can we speak to the manager? And they say, okay, one minute they go get the manager. Hey, how can I help you? And right away they're kind of, you know, hesitant. They're wondering sure. who we are. And we say, we, we built this software platform that allows you to more efficiently take payments, manage inventory. And here's a piece of paper, piece of paper about it. And they look at us like we're from another planet. And we yeah. just, we couldn't ever get success going door to door. And he's like, no, we, we have a system that works. Right. And in their head, they're thinking, I have a hundred things to do today. How do I get out of this conversation as quick as possible? So direct sales for us, you know, we beat our head against the wall with it. It, it really never paid off and it never paid off because people have a system that works. Um, and you can't, you can't just force your way in there. Mike, what know? if you were on TV on a talk show and, uh, you know, Larry King was interviewing you, would you think you would still be able to get that manager to throw out his POS system? Or do you think that there's fundamentally another, th- another problem here? Think of it like a spectrum, Brian. If you're on a zero to 10 and you're on zero is I don't care at all. I'm not going to change. <laughs> I'm not going to change my point of sale system. I've been doing it the same way for 30 years, you know, you know, go somewhere else versus 10 is like, man, this system sucks. I may, I, you know, I have 10 employees. We're growing quickly. I got to find something new. It's just not in the top of my plate. If you're, if I'm on Larry King and I'm talking to the guy who's a 10, he's going to switch tomorrow, right? Because sure. it's, it's supposedly easiest and fastest, but but the guys on the bottom, they're not, they're, they don't have that desire, right? They're you, immune to your yeah, message. If you go in, hey, it's, it's not broken. If you go into a, a, a one and you say, Hey, I'll give you $10,000 to switch. Sure. He'll listen to you. Right. But he's, he's not, he's not desiring to switch. So I think Flowtab, what I've learned is that you can go in and anyone will listen to you. Anyone will consider it and they'll either say yes or no. Right. They're not going to, no one's going to say, Oh, I already have a mobile ordering system. You know, Oh, I already have a, a mobile payment system available so tell me for the about bar. the early days. So here you're coming from that. That you know, realm of rejection, which I think everybody needs to face. It's not a bad thing. I mean, face the things in the dark. But you moved into this realm of where there is possibility thinking. 
how much how much was that transitioning really motivating you? Was it getting you, you know, back into the saddle, so to speak, and saying, "Wow, I want to talk to people about this. I'm energized." Yeah, it is. I think there's a difference. There's a different mental stimulation between building something that's just better than something that exists, right? Taking the feature sure. set, making it more beautiful, making it you know web based, making it faster and easier, and then there's you know, then there's something different. Then there's that feeling of creating an experience that never existed in the world. Um, and that was just, that was just awesome. That was just so alluring, um, to build, you know, I go into a restaurant, you know, we worked with at Flowtab, we worked with the largest hotel in California, the hotel Marriott with over 1600 rooms yeah. and they have three bars and, you know, we just cold called them. I called up, uh, Sylvia was the manager there and said, Hey, we have this mobile warning system. She's, Oh, really? That sounds neat. Come in. So we went in, it, it, like literally it happened like that. And, you know, that's after 25 rejection calls, but it, that one went well. And we went in and she said, Mike, if you gave up at 23 calls or 24 calls, yeah. it wouldn't <laughs> have happened. Right. Yeah. And this is what I, this is what I talk about all the time about reaching out. So you're in these early days, you got Marriott doing it. Things are going good. What was the next milestone? You're really happy, you're moving along, but there's milestones appearing, you know, in this journey. What was the next one? Next one, I think, was was understanding how you go from, um, you know, two or three places to two or three hundred, right? Or even taking that that next level. Um, but I think one thing that we um, we we didn't do well was was weighing the value of outside perception versus the value of the business. Um, Mike Jones is a successful entrepreneur and he was our advisor at Flowtab and he introduced us to Dex One. Dex One's a 2000 person public, yeah. publicly traded Salesforce company. They sold Yellow Pages ads and we partnered with them. Um, we, we developed a partnership in Denver where they had sales guys going out. They wanted to go to Orlando. They wanted to go to the Bay Area. And we were like, you know, we solved this distribution problem. This is awesome. Uh, but what we, we didn't solve was the experience problem, right? We didn't figure out that when you walk into a bar, maybe the number one thing in your head is not, how do I quickly order a drink? Maybe it's how do you know, you're not in a rush. No one in a, in a bar or in a restaurant necessarily is in a rush. That's why Let's they're there. Not, not, yeah. Uh -huh. So, you know, I, I think one thing we, we, we did, uh, incorrectly is partner with a, a big company too early. Um, Dex One was huge and they wanted to roll this out to their whole company. And Kyle's on stage in front of 2000 people saying Flowtab is going to be, you know, the savior for Dex One and the whole company's cheering and the CEO is, you know, wow. commending him. I mean, this is the scene wow. we were in, in Las Vegas at their company conference. And it just escalated so quickly that it was hard to say, wow, let's take a step back and, and let's talk to the 20 or 50 people inside of a restaurant or bar using our, our system. And we just found that people don't necessarily always want to use mobile ordering. And, um, and the difficult part is every, every experience is different. Every bar is different. So you have to position the iPad in different places to get it to work. And every place is a unique installation. Um, and that became just such a, such a difficult, uh, sort of insurmountable uh, obstacle for us. So this is interesting. Now we th we have the pyramid somewhat inverted. Here we have the potential of a huge sales force who has contacts into the market. But now you have a scalability potential problem of deploying these devices. Where are they going to go? How are we going to customize them? How how did that impact you at that point? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I would say, you know, 
it's got to be scary, right? Because yeah, the dream really is, is to get it out there as much as you can. And then you're, I hear in your voice and what you said is like, oh boy, maybe this isn't as big of a thing. Maybe we should go back and craft it better before we get all these 2,000 odd people selling it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd say, Brian, the, the balance of being an entrepreneur is, is weighing perception, but also weighing reality behind the scenes. Sure. You know, we had, there was four of us in the company at the time. We were based wow. in San Francisco. Um, you know, San Francisco is an interesting place. And I, I definitely do want to impart this perception that after going out to, you know, well over a hundred local merchants in San Francisco, myself over, you know, weeks, if not months, we, we learned that San Francisco is a completely unique place and that the reverse perception of technology is actually the reality that yeah. merchants in San Francisco, they sign up for, um, all the apps out there. If you ever see 25 stickers on a window, they sign it's up, out the of, Area, they yeah. sign up out of fear. And let me tell you something from, you know, selling in Denver to selling in San Francisco, the sales is so much different and the, the reaction and actually use of it is different. They, the, a merchant will sign up for something in San Francisco because they're fearful that if they don't, their competitors will. Um, so they kind of say yes to everything. There's something else too. I got to tell you this but, story because I think you find it humorous. Yeah. There was a, when I was conducting one of the square, uh, research studies, um, uh, for a client, and uh, I, I, I did it myself. I did the field work myself empirically. I'm sitting here with a merchant, and I'm counting the labels on his window. There's 27 of them. And uh, this particular merchant was in the square wallet. It's how I identified him. And I noticed that he had all of the possible payment devices you could ever get for free. He had this, he had a square uh, dongle. He had, uh, you know, PayPal had just come out. He had Bank of America had a thing. He had uh, Verifone. He had them all lined up. And I said, what are you doing here? He goes, well, he goes, they're all free, so why not? And he goes, well, Square will send some people me, to me, I hope, and, uh, and this and that. And I said, so why do you do this? And he goes, well, if I get just one customer coming in my business and it didn't cost me anything, sure. So I let these guys come in. He goes, every day somebody comes in with a new product, a new thing, and he goes, yeah, I'll do it. And, uh, and, and he sells a cup of coffee and a Danish to somebody while they're trying to sell him. And literally, it's a really practical and pragmatic approach. You got something to, to sell me? Okay, get a coffee uh, while you're talking to me. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's how he's loaded up. And I, mm-hmm. frankly, I see that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, not just in the Bay Area, but in a lot of different. Oh, places. hugely. So you're out there. You're out there seeing this inversion of of technology. So now you're out in the. Let's say even outside of Southern California, did you go out into the hinterland of like Cleveland or something like that with Flowtab? It, it was really it was really Los Angeles. Denver and San Francisco. Um, Let's talk Denver. What was yeah, different about so Denver? Denver? So Denver, we signed up the largest strip club in Denver. It's <laughs> called Shotgun Willies. And we didn't actually do it. It was one of the salespeople. Sure, Mike. Sal- sure, salespeople through, through Dex1. But I'll tell you this. I hadn't, I'm doing I hadn't, research. <laughs> I hadn't been to Denver until they sold them. And when we heard that, uh, you know, we had to fly out. And, uh, and we occasionally would we'd go every three weeks and we would train all their new uh, bars. And we'd go and, and we went into Shotgun Willies. And they're so large that it's, it hit me right there that when I was standing inside the strip club, you know, trying to train three of the waitresses on mobile payments, I'm thinking to myself, there was distractions all around. There was distractions. I I got to restrain myself with the comedy here. The important important part of it, though. I think we have to edit this part out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, The important part is that the, 
every merchant is so different. Every customer is so different that their, their needs were so much, um, they were so different than a, a small bar, the Marriott, that the user experience became, you know, so uncontrollable um, that I think that was the, that was the point in which I, I realized the only way we're going to make this work is to scale it, scale it down and, and focus more see, Brian, on the exact he, same he, customers. He, he, Brian, you see, he, he went short of words. He sort of lost his concentration. <laughs> no, all right, now, so let's go back to this. So you're, you're sitting at one of your primary customers in, in, uh, in Colorado, and you notice that there's a difference in the way they're going to apply this product. How did it inform you to make changes? What did it lead you to think? Yeah, I think, you know, again, I'm going to say it with a perspective that would help the most people listening. I think it gave us the impression as to our customer base, their core needs for features were, were so different. Um, you know, if you're inside a strip club, you can't use a cell phone, number one problem. So, you know, right then and there, we had to have a way of, you know, allowing people to order. And then how do you make those people become aware? I think a huge, huge problem, probably the number one issue in um, small business, small merchant, uh, whether it's mobile ordering systems or, or in-store experiences is how do you be, make the customer become aware and then how do you actually get them to make that commitment uh, to what do, do you something? think is the awareness uh, trigger today uh, versus back then what did it what did this inform you from all of these experiences yeah I don't think there's any magic to it um, I think you can have simple signage you can you know we've done studies and seen that even with uh, door signs and t-shirts hanging we would have illuminated uh, sign if you could have those that that makes a big difference because what you do right there Brian is you attract the early adopters you attract the people who are interested and want to try something um, like myself right if I saw something cool and new in a bar yeah I'd whip out my phone I'd give it a shot and if I liked it I tell other people and that's what you got to get you got to yeah. get the early adopters Network you're never going to get you're never going to get the guy the guy who's sitting there and he doesn't care about his phone and he doesn't want to do any of that. But you, he'll listen to his friend as a, as a filter who had previously tried something that had a good experience with it. So we really focused on getting those early adopters. Now, um, Floatab has met with some great success, but obviously it, it, it no longer exists. And you, you, went, you went about doing this most heroic thing is that you turned over most of your work product out to the market as a whole and I've read a lot of it printed it out in fact use it as a resource material where where was that point where you said can't do this I mean you have 2,000 salespeople you have some great uptake where was that inflection point that changed your mind yeah great question it was let me think it was it was realizing, it really was realizing that we couldn't get our key metric, which I think it's important to keep one key metric, which was orders per venue per day to increase steadily. You know, we would get spikes when we would do events, but we really couldn't nail that down. And I think the, the real pivotal moment was when we realized we, we held an event in San Francisco at McTeague's, which is our flagship yeah. venue. And, 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 and we realized from a friend of mine said that people don't want to come in to a bar for speed and efficiency. They want the inefficiency. That's why people come to a bar. They want to bump up against other people, right? People are in a bar. Number one reason people go to bars to meet other people of the opposite sex, right? I mean, this is the reality of it. So inefficiencies and sort of, you know, waiting in line and, and striking up conversations with people. This is what people want oftentimes. So the bars that we were in, um, we offered something that people really didn't want. And I think that once we realized 
that it was, it became a, a flag to us, a red flag that we need to change. And, you know, when we considered other verticals, we looked at the technology stack that we had built and we said, where would this be valuable? And just to quickly say how we did this was we created a list of five different verticals, hotels, golf courses, stadiums, um, and then local restaurants. And we said, which of these could we have a system to where people can order through the inventory interface that we built and place the order, it shows up on the iPad, it gets fulfilled and delivered. And we realized stadiums was the most interesting approach. So we went to, we called every stadium, Brian, you'd like this, we called every single one in the United States wow. over 20,000 capacity, which there's well over 120 of them. And we, we talked to each of them and we could, and we met with every single one in California. Uh, we met with uh, eight of them, and three of them agreed to say yes. Uh, they agreed. They agreed to actually use the service. They thought it was neat. Um, but at the exact same time, and here's the interesting part: Bypass Lane out of Texas yeah. raised, I think it was four million dollars from AEG, the management company of all the stadiums, Nolan Ryan, and eBay. So you know, at that point, we had you know in the tens of thousands, you know, less than, you know, a month of runway and, and kind of felt like this, this, this wasn't worth fighting over at that sort point. Sort of the last straw <laughs> that, that hit you. That really was. Yeah. That, if you're going to have a last straw, that was it. It was the TechCrunch article that says bypass lane raised $4 million. Yeah. So now knowing what you know today, would you have even started the business? Would it, it would you have informed it differently if you had a longer runway, more capitalization, would it have changed things? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because I think given capitalization, people become lazy, right? Yeah. You know, we work with Mike Jones now and, and he, he'll fund companies and say that the, the biggest thing is that if you waste time, then that's all you really have, you know? So, um, so to, to have capital is almost a gift and a curse sometimes because you end up working on projects that you don't really believe in for longer than you should. Um, you know, you can do so much in a year, but you can waste a year so easily. And I think that that was the biggest lesson is, you know, it was a, it was a beautiful thing not having tons of capital, right? Because then we were forced to figure it out or change. Very disciplining. Um, very, very Yeah, disciplining. it really is. You know, I think there's so many examples that just that, that you see. So- so in your heart of hearts, do you think that the, the seed of this could have been replanted and could have taken hold and here you are today, maybe in a different vertical? Let's um, just yeah. say you didn't, you didn't well, pick stadiums, you picked uh, uh, golf courses. Yeah. So I'll make, I will make this the last question, Brian. I think this, this question is tough, right? Imagining what could have been uh, is very difficult. I think, you know, golf courses certainly had the the challenges in place, but also the opportunities, right? Connectivity, uh, fulfillment, you know, halfway houses through the golf course. These are some of the challenges, but also, you know, there's, there's a lot of incentives, right? And I think if you could prove to a manager of a golf course, you know, there's 30,000 golf courses in the country. Um, and, uh, and if you could prove to them that the, the revenue that you bring them is greater than the cost that you charge them. And the sign up process is not too high and experience is better. Like you have a business. Um, and there's a couple of companies trying this now. And actually after we posted the TechCrunch article and on the website documented the whole FlowTap story, we were actually approached by people working on uh, the golf course concept. So, you know, I'd love to see it become a reality. I'm a huge advocate and believer in mobile ordering and mobile pay- and payments in general. Um, but I'm not sure that you know, if we would have been able to do it or not, it's, it's really hard to say. I think, you know, one of the wisest words I've ever heard is Paul Graham predicting the success of Stripe and Dropbox and uh, Airbnb and said they are unpredictable. 
they are literally unpredictable. Yeah. So, you know, I would have loved to believe that we were the best people in the world to make it happen, but it, you never know, you know, Dex So here you random. are, you, you decided to shut it down. What's your final, what's your final feedback? What would you, what would you want to tell somebody who is just yeah. starting on their journey? Here, here's the biggest thing, this. you know, use every experience as a level to the next thing, right? You want to work on something, you want to leverage that experience you gained and do something bigger and better with it. Um, so what, what Kyle and I, who now work together on Home Hero, um, which is a, a marketplace for families to find uh, caregivers, is, you know, we were able to take that experience we had with Flowtab and, um, and, and transition it into a, something bigger. Um, and now we're working with Mike Jones again down in Santa Monica at Science. And if you can leverage your experience, so, you know, the point of the publicity of Flowtab at the end there was to, you know, show everyone what we did so that they can hopefully gain something from it. But it was also to, you know, to market ourselves, to say, this is, this is what we did. Um, this is why we're valuable. This is why we're experienced. Um, and then, you know, when you have that sort of X, Y axis of X being skills, Y being exposure, if you increase that area in that graph, that's your luck, right? And I think we were, we were able to be really lucky after Flowtab and transition it quickly into a, the next big thing um, by just maximizing the amount of people that know about your experience. So I'd say to anyone listening that is at that point where they're considering their next um, their next work, their next project, you know, maximize what you did in, in some way. Write about it, um, blog about it, you know, get it out into the world so that people can see and say, wow, you know, this guy learned so much. He's the expert at, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so I think not, not, not enough people do that. And actually that was a lot of response we got from that TechCrunch article is, wow, I really need to do this for my company. Um, and it's so valuable to people, man. Great wisdom there, Mike. Uh, I really want to thank you for this. I think um, the insights here, really. Awesome. All right, well, guys. Well, thanks so much. This has been a pleasure. Well, thank you. You have a, you have a great day there and um, next thank show. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Look forward. Bye-bye. Bye. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.